And now, it's time to sit back and enjoy the Two True Freaks Internet Radio Broadcast. Attention, people of Earth. Do not resist us. All who oppose us shall be annihilated. We command the most powerful army of monsters in the universe. They are sure to defeat your Earth monsters. All those who are hearing this are now under the control of the Earth Destruction Directive. 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 Hello, everyone, and welcome to Earth Destruction Directive. I am your host, as always, Mr. Luke Giaconetti. I would like to thank everyone for downloading and listening to the show today. Hope everyone enjoyed our last episode where we took a look at two different Daikaiju card games, Godzilla Stomp and RAR, as well as Godzilla number 22 from Marvel Comics. This time up, we have got a uh, not Godzilla, not Gamera. We're going a little bit uh, off the beaten path with our uh, feature this month. We're taking a look at the Nikatsu film Gappa the Trifibian Monster. We are also looking at Marvel Comics Godzilla number 23, which is the penultimate issue of that series. So very exciting stuff, and I hope you guys uh, enjoy this episode. A few bits of news before we get started. Netflix has announced a Pacific Rim anime series will be forthcoming. The official description is, the original anime series follows two siblings, an idealistic teenage boy and his naive younger sister, who are forced to pilot an abandoned Jaeger across a hostile landscape in a desperate attempt to find their missing parents. Co-showrunners are Craig Kyle of Thor Ragnarok and Greg Johnson of X-Men Evolution. The series comes from Legendary Entertainment, of course. Uh, they released Call Kong Skull Island, both Pacific Rim films, the upcoming uh, Pokemon Detective Pikachu film. Um, no date ha has been set on when this will premiere, so as we hear more information, I'll be sure to pass it along to everyone here. Hat tip to Deadline, which is the source that I first saw this reported on. I think that an anime for Pacific Rim is a great idea. There's just so many stories to tell in that universe. And an anime is a really good, cost-effective way to do that, rather than a live-action TV show. Uh, comics would also work really good, as we saw when we did Tales from the Drift, that I think there's a lot of stories to tell in the different settings of the Pacific Rim universe. So very much looking forward to that. Subaraya has launched Kaiju Step, which is a campaign using little kid versions of Ultra Monsters, for very young children. It's an educational and entertainment brand, and it has books, anime, shorts, and merchandise. The name is about the little kaiju taking their first steps into the world. But the main draw for me is the absolutely adorable redesigns of various Ultra Monsters as little kids, including Gamora, Pigmon, Kanagon, Jamila, King Joe, Gigas, and more. On Subaraya's YouTube channel, they are streaming the first anime short, Little Pig and Donuts, where Little Pig, who is Pigmon, learns about washing his hands after eating some sticky donuts and his cuteness overload. Now this will never make it over to West, but still, for an Ultraman fan, just so cute. And hat tip to Sci-Fi Japan for breaking this news. So please go check out Kaiju Step. Very, very kawaii and adorable. That's all I've got. If you have any news or information regarding to the topics that we normally cover here on Earth Destruction Directive, go ahead and send them in. EarthDestructionDirective at Yahoo.com. We'll read them on the show and give you credit. All right, we're going to take a quick break, and we're going to come back with Gappa, the Trifibian Monster. 
right here on Earth Destruction Directive. Hello, ladies and gentlemen, this is Jason Giaconetti. You may recognize my voice from the Vault of Starling Monster Horror Tales of Terror, and if you don't, you should be listening. But today I need to ask you a few questions. Do you like big bugs and you cannot lie? Other robots just can't deny that when the Queen of Space walks in and puts a blast in your face that your gears get sprung? Are you deep in the bee we're sharing? Are you hooked and you can't stop staring? If you answered yes to any of these questions, then have I got a podcast for you. Bots, Bugs, and Babes, the B-Movie Podcast. From classics to cults and all the yummy, yummy cheese in between. Look for my new show, Bots, Bugs, and Babes, on the Two True Freaks Network and on iTunes. That's Bots, Bugs, and Babes, the B-Movie Podcast. Double J on the Triple B is your hookup. Holler if you hear me. All right, we are back here on Earth Destruction Directive. Gappa, the Trifibian Monster, was released in Japan on April 22nd, 1967, by Nikatsu Studios, under the title of Daikaiju Gappa. The film made its way over to the U.S. via AIP television as Monster from a Prehistoric Planet and was not released theatrically. The screenplay was by Iwayo Yamazaki and Ryozo Nakaishi from a story by Akira Watanabe. Special effects were by Akira Watanabe, who has numerous credits for art direction for special effects over at Toho. The producer was Hideo Koi, and the director was Hiroshi Noguchi, who primarily worked on action-y Yakuza movies for Nikatsu. And our story goes like this. An expedition from Tokyo heads to Obelisk Island, funded by the greedy Mr. Funazu, president of Playmate magazine. Funazu is looking for exotic animals and birds to populate his new resort, Playmate Land. The natives of Obelisk welcome the expedition, but two members, Hiroshi Kurosaki and Itoko Koyanagi, venture into a forbidden area despite the pleas of a native boy named Saki. They enter in a cavern blocked by a fallen statue and find a giant egg, out of which hatches a baby monster, a bird lizard, referred to by Saki as Gappa, the deity worshipped on the island. The natives plead with the skeptical scientists not to take the baby away, lest it anger the baby's parents. The expedition does not heed the warnings that Gappa angry, Gappa angry, and take the baby away. Soon, inside the cavern, its two parents rise from the underground waters beneath the volcano, destroying everything in their path. Saki, the only survivor, is rescued by an American naval ship and brought back to Japan. Meanwhile, back in Japan, the baby bird lizard is making world headlines, not to mention being experimented on by scientists. To the shock of the expedition members, there is news of two giant flying creatures appearing over Sagami Bay. The JSDF, aided by the U.S. Army, attack the monsters, and while unable to kill them, the military does manage to make the, quote, Trifibian, land, air, and sea, monsters retreat into the bay. A plan is enacted to use an ultrasonic frequency to force the Gappa out of the bay, where they can be killed by missiles. The plan initially works, and the military barrage the Gappa, but the monsters are not seriously hurt and fly off again looking for their baby. Hiroshi, Itoko, and Saki plead with Mr. Funazu to release the baby Gappa, but he refuses. Undaunted, they take the baby anyway, airlifting him to Haneda Airport. There, the monsters are reunited, and the Gappa fly off back to Obelisk Island, everyone a little wiser. Now, Gappa was the only Daikaiju Iga produced by Nikatsu, which is Japan's oldest film studio, 
founded in the silent era in 1912. By 1960, Nikatsu's output was primarily urban dramas, comedies, action movies, and gangster-slash-yakuza epics, with some Chanbara samurai and other historical films as well. By the 1970s, with the inroads made in Japan by television, Nikatsu turned to producing pink films under the series Roman Porno, Roman from the French word for novel, and porno from, well, porno. Pink films could be translated as softcore exploitation, but there were just so many of these produced by Nikatsu, there are a few hundred listed on Wikipedia, that they really encompass numerous genres and types of stories. In any event, that Nikatsu made this single Daikaiju movie is something of a miracle in its own right. I was first introduced to Gappa in the pages of one of the many hardcover, oversized monster movie-related books that my father had when I was a child. Specifically, it was an international poster for the film, which you can see on this uh, episode's episode art, which made reference to King Kong, illustrating a point that some 40 years after his debut, to many, Kong was still the top monster in the world. I was fascinated by this Japanese monster I had never seen, and the film stuck in my mind for years. In the 1980s, this film was not easily found, but by the time we got into the era of DVD, the fact that the AIP TV version, Monster from a Prehistoric Planet, had, like many AIP TV offerings, fallen into the public domain, made the film easy to find, and it was quickly added to my then-budding DVD library when I was in college. Gappa itself is very similar to the 1961 film Gorgo, a British-Hong Kong co-production, featuring a very similar story of a baby monster taken from its home and an angry parent, singular in the case of Gorgo, coming to rescue it. I would talk more about this connection, but unfortunately, we have not covered Gorgo yet. I had intended to do so earlier this year, but unfortunately, scheduling conflicts with my guest have made that not possible. So, please look for Gorgo in the future. Getting into specifics about Gappa. The island is pronounced in the English dub as Oblisk Island, even though it is clearly spelled Obelisk Island, and I'm assuming it's supposed to be Obelisk Island. Right at the beginning of the film, we almost, but not quite, get the Return to Earth Destruction Directive of Bikini Girls! Otoko is wearing a bikini with a tied-off shirt on the deck of the ship. Speaking of the ship, we do get a miniature of the ship, which is not overly impressive. But considering that it was not actually needed, since it doesn't interact with anything or any monsters, and it could have used stock footage, I do like that a model was included. On the island, the volcano just explodes every couple of minutes. Oddly, none of the expedition is concerned by this. I can understand if it is commonplace that the natives would be okay with it, but surely the expedition would think that a volcano exploding every couple of minutes is a bad sign? Speaking of which, at first sight of the natives, the expedition declare them cannibals, with no evidence to that effect. Clearly that line has not aged well. We also see the stone idol which represents Gappa, as is common in many island cultures seen in Daikaiju films to have an icon that they pray to as an avatar of their monster god. We see this specifically in uh, most times when Mothra shows up. We have an icon, a stone icon for Mothra. Before the team heads into the cave, we see for one very brief scene a baby pterodactyl. I'd like to think that a living pterodactyl would make a good exhibit for Playmate Land, but everyone is oddly disinterested. Inside the cave, Hiroshi teases Itoko about becoming a housewife, which seems to cement her desire to finish the mission. She is the photographer for the expedition. More on this point towards the end. The team, naturally, has fantastic timing, as the Gappa Egg waits until they show up in order to hatch. Very convenient. 
A monster egg hatching in a cavern is always going to remind me of Rodan, by the way. But if you're going to rip something off, rip off the best. Similarly, once the baby is captured and the expedition leaves, we see that there is not one, but two grown-up Gappa, so again, reminiscent of Rodan. After this, we get a short scene of Mr. Funazu, where we meet his adorable little daughter, who asks him to find her a new mommy. While the daughter does pop up later in the film, this subplot is not resolved, and Funazu does not change his ways or get a comeuppance at all, which is very strange, and we'll touch more on this as we go forward. The Gappa emerge from the cavern and smash the village as they walk to the shore. Well done, if a pretty basic monster scene. Thematically, it reminds me a bit of the scene in King Kong, where Kong smashes the gate and destroys the village on Skull Island. Oddly, there is no music in this scene, at least in the English dub. Some music would have really helped pull the scene together. I can only think of numerous monster rampage scenes in Toho films that are aided immeasurably by having Akira Ifukube provide the underscore. As the monsters make it to the shore, we see a U.S. naval submarine, which picks the monsters up on sonar before they speed off underwater. The sub is the mechanism to get Saki to Japan, and like other scenes with U.S. military forces in this era, the sub crew appears to be made up entirely of Westerners. They don't get many lines, pretty much just one short scene, but again, a trend that was started at other studios and Nikatsu seems to be using here as well. Back in Japan, the baby is being experimented on, including wearing a big helmet. No, I do not know how they got a helmet big enough to fit a baby monster. That's neither here nor there. We also see Funazu prodding the baby with a pointy stick and generally not being nice. Again, I have to ask the question, why does he not get his, or at least come to his senses in the final reel? The scene also introduces the concept of the Gappa homing signal, a naturally occurring homing instinct for this species. So you know what that means. Every time the gap is surface, we get the time-honored tradition in Daikaiju film of roiling water before the monsters rise up. Wouldn't be a proper Daikaiju film come with a monster coming out of the water if the water didn't roil up beforehand. The effects in this sequence where the Gappa come ashore in Japan are actually quite nice. The monsters actually jump from the water to the shore, which is an interesting effect when you consider that normally you have a suit used for water and a suit used for land, and the amount of water in the suit would have made it very heavy, to lift them up onto the out of the effects tank and onto the, the land set. Several times we also see them jump and lift off or land from a flying position right in the frame, which is, again, very nice use of wires. This was not very common in, in Toho, where we would often see a flying model or a flying puppet, and then we would see them land by first showing their feet or something similar, and then they'd be the ground suit. You know, famously in Destroy All Monsters, we get the scene of the land suit for King Ghidorah flying and landing, which is kind of a, that's a big deal in that film. But they do it very nicely here on something of a smaller scale. In addition, the models are well constructed for the, for the buildings, and they crumble quite nicely as the monsters crash through them. And while the effects are not up to the level of Toho, consider that Dai released Gamera vs. Virus the same year, and I would put Gappa's effects ahead of that film. Now, amusingly, in this scene, the Mama Gappa, who lacks the tall crest on her head that her partner has, has an octopus in her mouth, obviously bringing food for the baby. The military attack is also very well assembled, using stock footage and effect shots well. The Gappa's beams, which are simple animated optical beams, melt tanks, and we get several jet POV shots, similar to what Toho did a few years earlier in Godzilla vs. the Sea Monster. 
So the whole thing is composed like a traditional, typical daikaiju film. So Nikatsu was clearly aiming right at the center of that type of film. After the Gappa go underwater in Sagami Bay, we see them walking around on the bottom, uh, shooting dry for wet. We would see this more often in uh, Gamera films than we would in, in Godzilla films. It's not overly convincing, but again, it was not strictly required, so I'm not going to fault the film for being ambitious. They didn't really require to showing us them at the bottom of the bay. We also see a fancy series of missile launchers, again reminding me of Rodan. Just some nice extra mecha to get in here. Mecha, M-E-K-A. The JSDF and U.S. Naval Joint Plan involves driving the monsters to the surface using ultrasonic waves. Now this, I can understand, that makes sense. They choose to accomplish this, however, by fitting speakers onto motorboats, sending them out into the bay, and then sinking them. There has to be an easier way to pull this off. This seems unnecessarily complicated. That said, the plan works, and then the missiles are fired at the surfacing Gappa. Round after round after round of missiles. How many missiles do they have? Again, this is a normal thing in Daikaiju, but that's just a lot of missiles. Missiles are expensive. I mean, you hear, you know, when we talk about you know, how much a missile costs when we're talking in terms of defense spending. That's a lot of money, and they fire a lot of missiles at these monsters. Especially considering, ultimately, they don't work. The attack doesn't go as planned, as I said. Nagappa leave the bay, causing a tidal wave on the uh, shoral areas. Now, this is achieved through a double exposure technique, where they uh, have both uh, footage of the water and footage of people running in the streets, and they are double exposed together to combine them. Now, for a film of this vintage and budget, that's a pretty good way to accomplish the effect, even if it's fairly simplistic. Again, it bears repeating, a lot of people here die because of Funazu's greed, yet he gets off scot-free. We see dozens of people being caught up in a tidal wave in the streets. It's all because of Funazu. And yet, nothing bad ever happens to him in the remainder of this film. The plan to give Baby back to the Gappa is enacted, despite Funazu's protests, including Hiroshi saying at one point, we can't listen to a madman. A baby is airlifted to Haneda Airport in a slightly more dignified manner than King Kong got airlifted in either of his Toho features. Baby at least gets a net that they put him in, and they rig up to the helicopter. Kong was offered no such luxuries. Meanwhile, the Gappa are destroying fuel tanks and other outbuildings at Haneda, with a lot of flames in the dark nighttime scenes. And I mean this in both ways. This does take place at night, but again, at least on the AIP television Monster of a Prehistoric Planet cut, these scenes are very dark and hard to see. So the, the blacks are almost overwashing a lot of the uh, uh, of the, the footage here. It's very difficult to watch. This remind, this whole bit of the flames and all that reminds me of all the fire effects in the Pestar episode of Ultraman. Uh, this type of flame and pyrotechnic heavy effects would also become common in the 1970s Godzilla films when the effects were handled by Turoshi Nakano, who he really had a knack for that sort of work. We also get a nice touch of the Gappa being silhouetted against the flames. And, and even though this was made before that, it reminds me of Godzilla's first appearance in Terror of Mechagodzilla, where we see a silhouette against the light. The reunion of the monsters at Haneda Airport is filled with hugs, literally hugs, specifically from the mother Gappa to the baby. Now, Daddy Gappa obviously is a stoic Eastern-style father and does not show his affections for the baby. This is followed by the scene of Baby learning to fly, which may be the most well-known scene from this film, and it's pretty charming in its execution. And it does lead to a very nice final shot of the three Gappa 
flying back towards the sunset to Obelisk Island. Now, the denouement of this film also touches back to Hiroshi and Atoko arguing in the caves, as she says that now she will go off and be a housewife, and Hiroshi chases after her. It is left to the imagination of the viewer as to whether Hiroshi tells her to chase after her dreams of adventure or to reassure her that she has finally come to her senses and accepted domesticity. Now, Earth Destruction Directive Podcast has no official comment on that one. Overall, Gappa is a solid, but ultimately unspectacular Daikaiju film. Nothing about it is especially creative or different from many other films, nor is it particularly engaging or gripping in its execution. That said, it does its routine pretty well with a coherent plot, easy to follow action. The special effects are certainly on par with what we were seeing from studios such as Dai. It's not a genre classic, but definitely worth a watch, and frankly is worth a spot in the library of a Daikaiju collector. If you're listening to this show, you can probably pick it up, and I think you'll enjoy it. Now, if you want to own this film, you do have multiple options. Monster from a Prehistoric Planet crops up a lot in budget creature feature DVD sets, again, owing to it being out of um, in the public domain. And Alpha Video, whose website is oldies.com, released it on its own with really sharp box art, as all of their monster releases have. I, I have several Alpha Video, Gamera films, and Monster from a Prehistoric Planet, mostly because they're they're the same public domain, readily available version of the film, but the box art is really nice on them, and for a budget release, that's that's good enough for me. Similarly, it can be bought digitally on Amazon Prime Video, can be streamed for free on YouTube or archive.org. I'm a big fan of archive.org, as everyone knows, for public domain stuff. Now, Tokyo Shock, which was Media Blaster's kind of Eastern monster sci-fi film uh, outfit, they released a DVD of the film in widescreen and subtitle, but... Like pretty much everything from Tokyo Shock, this is unfortunately out of print, and you will have to get it on the secondary market where it does go for um, a good bit more than you're going to pay for a public domain uh, version of it. So, but worth checking out. Now, uh, what do you think? Have any of you out there watched Gappa, the Trifibian Monster, or Monster from a Prehistoric Planet? What uh, What are your opinions? Did you like it? Did you see this one as a kid? Did you see this one when it ended up on DVD like I did? Go ahead and send an email, Directive at yahoo.com, and we'll talk about it here on the show. All right, I'm going to take a quick break, and we'll be right back here on Earth Destruction Directive. past, a monstrous hybrid of land and marine reptiles was sealed into a state of suspended animation, slumbering through the fall of dinosaurs and the rise of man. But awakened by an undersea nuclear test, the creature returned to life, now breathing the fires of radiation. Stan Lee presents Godzilla, King of the Monsters.
All right, we are back here on Earth Destruction Directive. Godzilla number 23 was covered dated June 1979, was released on or about March 20th, 1979. As usual, this information comes from Mike's amazing world of comics. Our cover is by Herb Trimpey, and it depicts the Avengers in Manhattan uh, with Godzilla in the background attacking a group of fighter jets, and the vision says, Stay back, Avengers. Only Yellowjacket and the Wasp can stop Godzilla. Our writer is Doug Mensch. Our penciler is Herb Trimpey. Our anchor is Daniel Green. Letterer Irving Watanabe. Colorist Ben Sean. The editor is Al Milgram. The title of our story is The King Once More. And our synopsis is adapted from marble.wikia.com. With Godzilla returned to present-day Earth at full size, the monster goes on a rampage through New York City. The Godzilla Squad and Reed Richards of the Fantastic Four try to lure Godzilla to the harbor where they hope to put him out to sea. But Godzilla eventually decides to stand his ground and fight. With the Godzilla Squad and the Fantastic Four not enough to stop the monster's rampage, the Human Torch enlists the aid of the Avengers. With the added might of Earth's mightiest heroes, they manage to get Godzilla on the defensive, fighting the monster into New York Harbor. However, this is far from defeating Godzilla as he rises from the water even more furious than ever before. Next issue, Battleground Manhattan. Well, folks, this is it. This is the beginning of the big fight at the end as the series is winding down towards its conclusion. And I think it does a really good job of telling that story. So let's get right into the notes. The cover focuses on the Avengers characters, and we see Godzilla in the background. Right in the foreground, the extreme foreground, we have Thor, and then we have Iron Man, Yellow Jacket, the Wasp, and the Vision in the foreground. And then Godzilla is all the way in the back, because I actually see a fair number of buildings, and then the jets, and then Godzilla behind them. Uh, it's interesting that the scale, we still get the sense of scale that we often get with these Godzilla covers from Trimpy, in that we see Godzilla towering over the buildings and a bridge. Uh, so even though the focus is clearly on the Avengers characters, you know, we still get that sense of size for just how big Godzilla is. I do like also kind of the, uh, the ironic twist that only Yellowjacket and the Wasp, the two smallest and physically weakest of the Avengers, can stop this gigantic rampaging monster. And that actually does come into play in the story. So I, I like that uh, bit of cover copy. Uh, page one, this is our splash page. There is a lot crammed into this. Godzilla looks like he is almost too big for the page, almost like he's ducking down to get into the panel underneath the credits on the top. Uh, in fact, the, the title, The King Once More, runs right on top of him, on top of his shoulders and some of his uh, dorsal spines. But we've got, you know, a wrecked part of city of, of, of uh, Times Square, excuse me. We've got a movie theater. We've got traffic. We've got the Human Torch. We've got a statue being knocked over. We've got the tip of Behemoth. We've got Mr. Fantastic reaching in. We've got Godzilla. There's just a lot going on in here. Uh, I do really like the on the marquee for the movie theater. It is Jaws 2. Marvel was really excited for that film, apparently, weren't they? I guess uh, maybe they were doing a tie-in, right? Something like that, huh? Uh, I know that Jaws 2... Um, comic book uh, adaptation has been <laughs> dropped and mentioned numerous times here on Two True Freaks the last few years, so that made me smile. Uh, turning over now to page two, as Reed Richards is calling out to the members of the Godzilla squad, how do they hear him from outside of Behemoth? Reed is outside yelling at them. How would he hear them? And then furthermore, the final page, he stretches into the cockpit. Why is there an exterior door on Behemoth from the cockpit? That doesn't make a lot of sense, neither from a 
just, you know, a design standpoint or a tactical standpoint. Unfortunately, these questions, sadly, go unanswered in this issue, and I doubt we'll ever find out either, either the answers to those questions. Um, page three, panel three, uh, Reed ducks uh, and stretches around Godzilla and avoids his atomic breath. Uh, again, I'm going to ask the question, radiation poisoning. Uh, I know I'm a broken record here when it comes to pointing out instances of people being in very close proximity to Godzilla's atomic breath and being okay. Uh, so there's a, there's a much worse one later on than this. So all I'm going to say is maybe it's the unstable molecules in his costume. They can do everything else. Maybe they also filter out radiation and uh, prevent uh, Reed from, you know, receiving a, a, a lethal dose here. Uh, page th further on down on page three, panel five, uh, we get a, a panel where we see the behemoth flying over the top of the, uh, of the, of all the, of the city block. And we see all the traffic and all the people panicking in the street. And then Godzilla coming around the corner. We're looking down the avenue, so to speak, at the behemoth turning towards us and then Godzilla coming around the corner. Great panel here because it really shows the scale of all the elements factoring into the story. We get, you know, the size of Godzilla relative to the buildings surrounding him in Manhattan, the size of behemoth, the size of people. And it's all very efficiently done in this one panel. So I really like that. Uh, even though it's kind of a uh, not not a very action-heavy panel, I thought it was a well-designed one. On page five, we get uh, a member of the NYPD sees Godzilla, um, much bigger than he was the last time he saw him, and he immediately gets out of his car, pulls his service um, revolver, and starts firing. Anytime I see a police officer uh, firing, you know, matter-of-factly at a monster, I'm of course remembering back to the beast from 20,000 Fathoms. So this guy clearly was a Harryhausen fan in <laughs> uh, his youth and then sees his opportunity to do the same thing uh, as in that film. And in the, as in that film, it is not overly effective. Uh, in fact, Reed Richards comes in and scolds the guy at the end, which I'm sure is going to look great on his service record that he got scolded by a superhero. Uh, turning over now to page six, panel six, which is the uh, bottom panel on the page. It is about a third of the height and the full width, similar to... Uh, the panel we got a couple of pages ago, another great panel. This one's kind of a wide angle, but again, showing all of the different elements as we see Behemoth on the right-hand side of the panel firing missiles down at Godzilla, and Godzilla kind of turning around and seeing what's hitting him. And they're right in the middle of the street. You can see the pavement cracking underneath Godzilla's feet. You can see cars have been abandoned. Uh, we see some the rest of the New York skyline behind him. And again, it, it this to me... Looking at this shot, if I took this as like a storyboard, this would be like an effects composition shot from a Heisei era Godzilla film. The way that all of the elements are kind of laid out here and we're going to see in the big picture. I really like this panel. Again, not the most, there is more action here because Godzilla is getting shot by Behemoth, but not the most dynamic panel, but I really like it just for the sense of scale and size. Page seven, panels one and two, after Godzilla turns to face Behemoth, he roars his defiance uh, and immediately begins, um, you know, putting his interest right on uh, on Behemoth. Mensch really puts Godzilla over as, as having no fear of anything whatsoever. He is, after all, the king of the monsters. So uh, the Behemoth, which he has tangled with before, is not going to intimidate or uh, push him back. The best you can hope for, like they do here, is to get Godzilla to chase after it. So I thought that was nice. Over on page 10, the first panel, we see absolute panic and pandemonium as the street as people are just running every which way to get away from Godzilla. One guy is getting the glasses knocked off of his face. 
makes me think of a lot of the kind of earlier Showa films where we'd see people evacuating from cities, kind of a standard scene in early Showa Godzilla films is seeing all the, actually I shouldn't say just Godzilla, early Showa Toho films in general is seeing all the evacuations of people uh, running away. Again, I'm going to raise the point about radiation, but at this point, since it's, you know, where the whole issue, this point is moot by the end of it as far as that. Uh, we also get on this page Rob Takaguchi, and he is, he is just, he has tears of joy pouring down his face because Godzilla is back. So, uh, those of you who are missing Rob Takaguchi, he's back now. Now, pages 11 through 15 is an extended sequence at the Daily Bugle of all places with J. Jonah Jameson and Robbie Robertson, where they are arguing and Godzilla is ends up right outside the window of J. Jonah Jameson's office. Uh, there's actually some ads in the middle, so it's not quite as long as all that. It's only about uh, uh, two and a half pages. Um, the, the idea of Godzilla looking in on someone in a building, in a high-rise building, it's done in a very serious way in 1991's Godzilla versus King Ghidorah, where he's looking into the into the office of the the former uh, garrison commander of Lagos Island, uh, who was the garrison that helped, um, you know, that that paid tribute to the Godzilla Saurus. So you got to go watch that one to understand what I'm talking about. But it's a very famous scene of the two of Godzilla and this guy having kind of a stare off, and then Godzilla ends up. Uh, blasting him with atomic breath, and the implication, of course, being that the uh, the guy's committing seppuku uh, there in the building because Godzilla's destroying everything that he had built since the war. Here, it's played for laughs, and that's understandable with J. Jonah Jameson. Again, I, I feel the need to point this out, Godzilla breathing like he does because he exhales a, a full mouthful of breath on J. Jonah Jameson. And I would like to think that that simple exhalation of Godzilla's uh, breath would probably kill a man of J. Jonas Jameson's age and health. But again, I'm going to let it slide in this case because it's pretty darn funny. And, you know, Jonah pitching a fit and uh, over the, over the whole, the whole incident is really amusing to me. I did not expect this scene. And so it, it really uh, tickled my fancy when I read it. So further on, on page 15, panel six, we get a very classic Avengers lineup as we get Iron Man, the vision, the Scarlet Witch, Yellow Jacket, Thor, Captain America, and the Wasp. Definitely a classic Avengers lineup if there ever was one. But they are sitting around Avengers Mansion playing Monopoly. Why are they playing Monopoly? If there's nothing going on before this whole Godzilla thing, why are they all on monitor duty? Usually the, you know, usually in an Avengers book, we see some of them training. We see some uh, people not at the mansion doing their own thing. It's not like they're the X-Men and they're, they all live there. I don't believe that they all live there at this point. I mean, if nothing else, you know, I know that, uh, you know, Tony Stark certainly didn't live at Avengers Mansion. Why would they all be there in their costumes ready to go if there was apparently such a slow day that they're playing a game of Monopoly? I mean, it's not like they're playing a quick game of cards or something like that. They're playing a game that takes some time. That, that I mean, it, it's here for the joke um, where they're talking about, hey, you passed go and forgot to collect. I thought I only collected when, and then the alarm goes off, so... At, I don't know. I, I guess this joke kind of misses the mark for me. Uh, I'm turning over now to page 19 as a human torch shows up and uh, asks the Avengers for help. Uh, Yellow Jacket um, actually steps up and we see a very interesting, you know, kind of a trope they don't really play with much anymore. But the human torch says a big green dinosaur is trying to mash Manhattan. His name's Godzilla and he can look a skyscraper in the eye. And then Yellow Jacket says, then Henry Pym's shrink gas proved ineffective? And uh, the torch says, well, let's just say it wasn't exactly permanent. But 
There, Yellow Jacket protecting his secret identity. Uh, that used to be very common, obviously, in, in superhero comics, especially here in the Bronze Age, and clearly going back to the Silver Age, but not something we see a whole lot of in modern comics. So I thought that was a nice touch. It wasn't, it's not, um, you know, he doesn't say, oh, my shrink gas, and it's not someone else uh, saying Henry Pym. It's actually Henry Pym saying Henry Pym's shrink gas proved ineffective. So I like that a lot. I thought that was a, a nice little superhero comic touch in our monster comic. Over on page uh, 21, in the bottom half um, of the page, Rob Takaguchi runs into the cockpit, and Dum Dum Duggan is not in the mood for anyone's BS today. He is just done, because he shuts down Rob, says, get that kid out of here, and I mean now. I ain't got time to argue. I mean it. Ten seconds, and I bite his blasted head off. And so... uh uh, Tamara and Dr. Takaguchi take Rob out of there, but uh, Duggan is just not in the mood for it, and I absolutely love it. Duggan is just pushed to his absolute limit, trying to get you know his charge, trying to get Godzilla out of Manhattan. He doesn't have time for Rob's nonsense, and I really like that we don't really deal with it. They really shut him down very quickly because this is a very um, potentially dangerous situation, and obviously with a lot of uh, a lot of potential casualties here with Godzilla in the middle of Manhattan. Over on page 22, panel 5, Godzilla counterattacks again and attacks Behemoth once again. Um, we see uh, Behemoth looking like it's being rocked almost by the uh, torrent of atomic fire that Godzilla is unleashing on it. Uh, very forward-looking, I think. We see uh, seeing Godzilla battling the flying tank because this would become very common in the Heisei era with the Super X series of uh, flying tank vehicles and the Garuda. So Godzilla f uh, fighting against a, a flying armored vehicle like this, you know, d would eventually become visually very common in the Godzilla series. But here in, in 1979, we weren't there yet. So I thought then that was very um, prescient in, in a way that uh, I, I doubt that this had anything to do with um, Toho going in that direction. But it's still neat to note um, anyway. Over on page uh, 23, panel one, as uh, all of the heroes are being rocked by behemoth being attacked uh sue storm just pops up right in front of the panel it's a sue storm photobomb she doesn't have anything else to do in the issue so at least she gets to uh, make a quick appearance there further on down on page 23 thor makes the rallying cry yells avengers assemble and attack but godzilla completely straight up no sells this because thor yells that then iron man says think we can move him thor and Thor says, we cannot know ere we try, mine armored friend, and let it never be said that the Avengers are unwilling to try. And then the caption box, as we see Godzilla staring back up at the Avengers, his eyes are just the red with the, uh, with, with the black inks all around it. There's no pupil and smoke rising from his mouth. The caption box says, nor let it be said that Godzilla is unwilling to meet any challenge anywhere at any time much like godzilla got put over earlier mensch is is not underplaying godzilla here uh, you remember and we'll talk about this issue in, in a few minutes way back in issue number three when godzilla tangled with the champions i didn't like that they were kind of putting the champions over uh, over godzilla in his own book here we don't really get that godzilla is not in a good mood godzilla is at the peak of his powers and the avengers are frankly outmatched as well they should be i mean i understand this is a marvel book and avengers should be top dog i'm sorry to me godzilla will always outrank them as far as sheer power and the ability to you know how do you hurt this guy how do you really hurt a a, a monster like godzilla to that point page 26 panel one Okay, I have 
been harping on this this entire series, but in this panel, Godzilla lets loose with a torrent of atomic breath that engulfs all of the heroes. This, to me, is the most striking of all the atomic breath examples in the series to date, because it is a full-size Godzilla at full power, unleashing a full torrent of atomic breath at point-blank range. I'm sorry, the vast majority of these heroes just died in the middle of Manhattan. Understand this is a code book. Understand they're not going to wipe out the Avengers fighting Godzilla. But this, to me, is just blatant. It's so in your face over this. I mean, we see the human torch uh, survive. And he says, you may have slowed down the other's foul mouth, but this is one hot shot who's definitely in his element. No, you're not. Your heat is not atomic fire. Your heat is based on thermal energy, not radiation. You, of all people, um, you know, again, unless we're going back to the... Uh, uh, to the unstable molecules of Reed Richards, you're, you're just as vulnerable as anybody else. You're more vulnerable than others because you don't at least have, uh, you're just a mortal who was mutated by cosmic rays. So I, I really, like I said, I understand. I, I've I said it before. I'm a broken record on this, but the depiction of Godzilla's atomic breath is frustrating because if you're going to have Godzilla do that, they're all dead with very few exceptions. Okay. We see, we see Thor survive and Thor goes on to fight, um, uh, Godzilla uh, further on the page. Iron Man is there. Okay, maybe Iron Man's um, uh, armor would provide him a measure of protection. Okay, the Vision. Okay, uh, maybe I, I can I can kind of see the Vision, but like the Fantastic Car. The Fantastic Car is now toast. I'm sorry. There, there's no way around it. There's there's no uh, it, it just just the sheer amount of rads on display here would shut it down and crash it. Uh, there's very few, um, you know, sophisticated instruments like that that would survive that much radiation at once. So this, this to me is like the big takeaway. And it's, it, it, it takes everybody out of the fight, but it does not really wipe them out as it really should. And understand again that it's, it's, you know, the target audience and who the book is being made by and all that. But that, like I said, that one really stuck out to me. Now, as I said, on pages 26 and 27, Thor fights Godzilla. Call back to Hercules, uh, again, in that issue three, managing to dump Godzilla over. Uh, Thor, you know, the way he does, he fly, he fights him with Mjolnir and then Godzilla exhales on him and blows him away. So you can see the two of them kind of tussling back and forth. I like that better than Hercules somehow managing to pick Godzilla up and not Godzilla just, you know, smushing him down, you know, however many feet into the ground with his foot. So that, this I actually liked. And all the Avengers here, really Thor is the only one that can, that can go toe to toe with uh, a, a monster in the power level, power class of Godzilla. So a good, good call on that. Further down page 27, we get a very clever use of Hank and Janet to take down Godzilla. What they do is they shrink down, they fly inside his inner ear, and then they find his center of equilibrium to induce vertigo so that Godzilla falls over into the harbor. I really liked this. Reminds me of their Silver Age adventures in the uh, Tales to Astonish when they were Ant-Man and the Wasp. Here, they're Yellow Jacket and the Wasp. But when they were Ant-Man and the Wasp, the solutions to the villains they were fighting had to be creative. They could not rely on physical strength. So that was something I always thought was lost in the Tales to Astonish days when Hank was transitioning from Ant-Man to Giant-Man. Because Giant-Man would always use strength to solve his problems. And so I always thought that Ant-Man was more enjoyable to read because it required a bit more creativity from Stan to uh, to figure out how they were going to use the, 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 the power sets that they had available in order to topple the villain of the day. So very nice to see that here. Of course, this leads over to page 30, where Godzilla rises up out of the bay, and Godzilla is pissed. 
all the Avengers have managed to do is to start the engine of destruction and turn it into high gear because Godzilla looks furious and the caption boxes really put over uh, just how dangerous a situation this is. The final irony, just beyond the very same docks where Godzilla first entered New York as a tiny specimen, he now rises in his full majesty, dwarfing everything in sight and bursting with the power of total destruction. And it's such a great figure. It's such a perfect example of the way Trimpy draws Godzilla. As my brother said uh, many months ago, kind of like a sumo wrestler with the large belly and the thick legs and the, uh, and his, and his arms raised up in, and roaring his defiance. Great last page. And especially with that tag battleground Manhattan, you know, you're coming back <laughs> for the next issue here. Oh man. Uh, fun stuff elsewhere in the issue. Um, the bullpen bulletins, uh, stand soapbox. Now I do want to take a quick moment because prior to, uh, recording this episode, of course, Stan Lee, one of the, um, you know, most, most beloved figures in uh, the entertainment world. And of course, uh, giant in the comic book world, uh, has passed away at the age of 95. So I want to give a shout out to the man who helped bring so many beloved creations to life. I know that my world and the world of countless others is a little bit brighter because of his work and the, uh, the characters that he touched and helped bring to a, a wide audience, and uh, he will definitely be missed. Uh, you just know that him, you know, Jack Kirby and Steve Ditko, they're creating some crazy concepts out there in the universe somewhere. So, best to all his family and all that. And uh, you know, like I said, uh, that's the only tribute I can say is that you know, my life is demonstrably a little bit brighter just because of the work that that Stanley did. So, in the column itself. Stan is hyping their new adult-aimed magazine, but he doesn't name the title, so I'm not really sure which magazine he's talking about. Uh, I'm not sure that this is before my time as an actual Marvel reader, so I'm not sure where this is going. Uh, the bulletins, nothing particularly interesting in there, just kind of some, some comings and goings. The Godzillagrams actually contain a, a point-counterpoint set of letters, which I, I thought was really interesting, where one reader praises the shrinking Godzilla story, and then the, the second one blasts it as nothing more than quote rotten writing interestingly all throughout this letter page there's absolutely no mention at all of the next issue being the final issue so uh, you know maybe they i don't know there there's i mean we all know how it turns out i guess it really was they, they talk about this in uh i don't remember if this was in marvel comics the untold story or one of the other marvel books i've read over the years where they just you know they they, they ran it and they renewed it and they ran it and then they decided not to renew it was it really down to that when they were putting together the letters page? They weren't sure if they were going to renew it or not. So I don't know. Uh, flipping through the book now for ads. Uh, we got here come the Trons, the Micronaut robot clowns. Um, not sure about that. Micronauts is kind of a, a big, um, blind spot for me. They, again, they were before my time. I know every, a lot of people like the Micronauts. I've never really managed to get into them, I guess, because the toys are not really my thing. Uh, we get Heroes World with uh, the new Marvel merchandise, including the uh, all-new trio of Marvel ceramic mugs. They have the Spider-Man one looks like a... Oh, it's a... Oh, yeah, okay. You can get Spider-Man, Captain America, or Thor in either a mug or pencil caddy or an 18-ounce collector Stein. That's pretty sweet. I like that. They got wallets. They got key holders, uh, socks, and a toothbrush. The Spider-Man toothbrush. Uh, good stuff here from Heroes World. Um, let's see, you got the uh, a couple of hodgepodge ads. Uh, free super shot vet from Marks. I think we've covered this one before. Uh, big two page ad right in the middle with all the different Marks cars. Uh, we got the subscription ad with Spidey at the newsstand. 
where the news it new agents and says, sorry, we're all sold out. And we see Spider-Man going, life has no meaning without my latest Marvels. And just, uh, just a little dramatic, but you know, a little drama in your Marvel comics is okay. A uh, giant sailplane from Whoppers. Uh, we've seen most of these, uh, before. Now we, um, let's see. Yeah, the back cover is, uh, Spalding Streetball with Rick Barry and Dr. J, which most, I assume most people know at this point. Uh, now we do get a hostess ad, and it stars everyone's favorite friendly neighborhood Spider-Man, and it's entitled Hot Shot on the Block. Oops! That was too close for comfort. My old enemy Hot Shot must be all fired up again. Y'all be a pile of ashes when I really turn on the heat, webhead! It's going to be a hot time in the old town tonight. My fire-resistant webbing can take whatever you throw at me, Hotshot. Luckily, I'm a swinger, too. If I don't get old Hotshot to turn up the heat, this cookie will be burned to a crisp. But I've got a great idea. Even Hotshot can't send fireballs at me and eat Hostess Twinkies cakes at the same time. Mmm, golden sponge cake, creamed filling. That's a Hotshot combination if I ever tasted one. Hotshot isn't so hot anymore, thanks to Hostess. I'll just hang around here and enjoy some more Hostess Twinkies cakes. You get a big delight in every bite of Hostess Twinkies Cakes. Um, as far as ridiculous Hostess villains go, this guy's not bad. He's got a cool look, cool name. He can he can throw fireballs. That's not bad at all. I can see how he would have uh, fit in, uh, uh, you know, in like a Masters of Evil team or something like that. Uh, and, um, you know, the name Hotshot I had to resist. Uh, it's talking about jam. Yum jam! That's a Transformers reference. Uh, overall, I, I really enjoyed reading this issue. It's uh, It really delivers on the setup of having Hank and Janet involved several issues back, and then the tangle with the Fantastic Four and the American Museum of Natural History, and brings it all to a big crescendo to set up the finale next issue. So I like that you know elements and characters that uh, were introduced prior are now coming back and being involved in the story um, as, as we kind of move towards the end. It really feels like Mench has been building and building and ratcheting up the threat level to this point where, to where we now literally have Godzilla stomping through Midtown Manhattan. And in the Marvel universe, I mean, that's, that's like, you know, that that's the epicenter of the Marvel universe is Manhattan. So having Godzilla there, it really is delivering on the promise of Godzilla in and part of the Marvel universe. And, and, and in a similar vein, if Godzilla is in the Marvel Universe, you better believe the Avengers are going to get involved. So really delivers on that. I am very excited to read issue number 24 now, even if it is going to bring our coverage of this series uh, to an end when we cover that one. Now, uh, as always, if you'd like to read this issue, it is collected in Essential Godzilla if you can find it out there. So what did you folks think? Did you like uh, Godzilla being back to full size, tangling with the FF and the Avengers in the middle of Manhattan? I know I did. So why don't you tell me your thoughts? Send me an email, Directive at yahoo.com. We'll discuss it here on the show. All right, we're going to take a quick break, and we'll be right back to close out the show here on Earth Destruction Directive. My name is Grundy, born on a Monday. The following recording was taken from an NSA wiretap of a back to the men's taping. No names have been changed. Everyone is guilty. Do I need to mine, or am I good where I'm at? Well, now you do. <laughs> if I have to mine, you have to yours. You might want to yours only if you do have it set to automatically because you don't want it to automatically because the thing never works right. Because what will happen is it will be used to you at a particular time, and then if you go out of that, it scrambles to uh, a 
and it doesn't fast enough, so it's better to just set it up. Oh, okay. It it really doesn't work well. So I checked. Uh, I checked my. uh, Mm -hmm. My. It definitely built built me for the hotel for all three of us. Join back to the bins every week for goodness. Solomon Grundy hate voiceovers. All right, we are back here on Earth Destruction Directive. And now it is time for a little bit of listener feedback. If you would like to get in touch with the show, you can always write me at earthdestructiondirective at yahoo.com. I can also be reached on Twitter and Facebook. Just listen to the outro of the show, and I'll have all the ways you can get in touch with me. So let's get right into the email. Our email today comes from Mike Decker, and the subject is simply Earth Destruction Directive. And Mike writes, Sir Luke. I feel so fancy all of a sudden. This email is long overdue. This year, I've been binge listening to older episodes of all my favorite shows on the Two True Freaks Network. After hearing many of your guest appearances on Back to the Bins, as well as Kong Week and Apes Week, man, those are some flashbacks. Those were a lot of fun. Um, I did Kong 1933 with Chris and Scott and I think a few other people, and then I did Conquest of the Planet of the Apes during Planet of the Apes Week. That is a That is a callback. Fantastic stuff. I decided to follow you over to Earth Destruction Directive, and I'm really glad I did. Your show has reignited my love of classic Daikaiju movies and TV series. I'm an old-school 70s monster kid who never missed a Godzilla movie when it was shown on Channel 11. Oh, my heart just went pitter-patter. WPIX, as everyone who listens to this show knows, is very close and near and dear to my heart growing up in New York in the 1980s and 90s, as I did. A lot of love and affection for uh, Channel 11 WPIX. Um, let's see, Mike continues. I enjoy all the Showa series, even Godzilla's Revenge. God help me. Godzilla's Revenge, it's a little rough going, but there, there's some, there's some entertainment to be wrung out of that movie, I think. Uh, he continues. I was also a fan of the Heisei series when it was released to video in the 90s. I only lost my enthusiasm after the 1998 American Iguanazilla epic. By the way, you need to do a special episode of Earth Destruction Directive about Godzilla 98 as well as the animated series. It may not be good but it is worth discussing. I do have Godzilla 98 on my list of topics to cover and at least touching on Godzilla the series. I've touched very briefly on Godzilla the series a long time ago because we covered the first of the two Game Boy video games that were made uh, as tie-ins to um, Godzilla the series. So I, I do intend to cover that. Godzilla the series was actually quite nice, and it was much better and much more entertaining, I thought, than the actual movie. Uh, I think it had, it tried something different and kind of went in a different direction. And again, kind of like I mentioned with the news at the top of the episode, doing it in animation gives you a certain um, ability to tell different types of stories than you can do in live action. So all the different monster battles and stuff that they got away with on that show, you couldn't necessarily do in live action. So I I guess we will be covering that Godzilla 98 and Godzilla the series at some point. Uh, Mike continues, the following year, I saw Godzilla 2000 in the theater and thought it was okay, but not as enjoyable as the previous series. I don't care for any of the Millennium series that came after. As for the new 2014 reboot, didn't see it. Looks too dark and gloomy for my taste. Yeah, you know, it. the legendary Godzilla is definitely a more serious film. It doesn't have the what we normally think of as the more lighter touch of a lot of the Showa films, but I, I always... I feel, and, and this is just my take, that the legendary film was a serious film, but it wasn't like this, you know, grim, 
downbeat, dark movie. I think it was a, trying to be a serious movie and approach it from a serious standpoint. I think it's worth watching. I, if, if, if you're more of a show on Heisei fan, I think it, it may not be the right fit for you, but I think it's definitely worth watching and, and forming your own opinion. You know, I, I don't, uh, I, I don't think it, uh, is, is easily defined as being just a dark, grim movie. I totally can see how you'd get that from the way it was advertised for sure. But I do think it is, it is worth checking out, especially with King of the Monsters coming out, um, next year. Uh, definitely going to be, I personally am definitely going to be revisiting Legendary Godzilla in 2019. Mike continues, so thanks to your excellent podcast, I've jumped back on the Dai Kaiju Wagon, and after many years of gathering dust on my shelf, I've been re-watching all the Toho movies in my DVD collection, and it's been a real blast. I've even been showing some of the classics to my granddaughter, who is just three, and isn't the least bit afraid of the Big G, who she insists on calling Dinosaur, because she got confused when we watched King Kong vs. Godzilla, which has both a Godzilla and a gorilla. That is adorable. I've been watching, kind of slowly working through the Showa films with my kids, and uh, they're a little bit older than your granddaughter, but not much, because my youngest is five, and yeah, they've they've been similarly loving them. Those Showa films just they're they're just so colorful and fun. You know, we're we're right up to we just last one we watched was Monster Zero, so next one will be Sea Monster. So you, do you get much more enjoyable than that? And King Kong versus Godzilla, that is such a treat that movie to watch it with the kids. It really is. So I, I hear you on this one, and I'm glad your granddaughter enjoyed it. One more thing. After listening to the many shows you've been on, I have become a big fan of your podcasting style. In fact, if I see your name listed on a podcast, I'll give it a listen, even when I'm not particularly interested in the subject. Keep up the great work. Can't wait to hear what's coming next. Signed, Groovy Mike Decker. Well, Mike, thank you very much for this wonderful email and that little bit at the end about you enjoying my podcasting style. Thank you very much for that. That really does mean a lot. Um, you know, I've been influenced by lots of other podcasters on the network and off the network, and I just try to produce the best show I can. And I, I am glad that, um, that the stuff that I'm doing is, is entertaining to you. And I hope that you keep listening and I, and I still can provide you with entertainment because that's, that's the, the just the best thing to a podcaster here, just somebody saying they like what they're doing. So, um, I know, again, I don't know if you're a wrestling fan. Hope you like and get back to the wrestling and the Vault of Starling Monster Horror Tales of Terror. And, uh, I did. As I've recorded this, I've just recently done a guest spot on Back to the Bins. I'm not sure when that's going to air, but, uh, so I'm, I'm glad that you're enjoying it and hope you stick around for more Earth Destruction Directive. And we'll get to what's next in a few minutes. So, uh, social media likes, shares, and retweets for our last episode came in from Ape Games, which is cool because we talked about one of their games. Xenophonic Xenophiles, Robert Ludwig, the most sane man, the relatively geeky podcast network, two true freaks, the History of Comics on Film, my brother Jason Giaconetti, the Professor Alan Middleton, Chuck Rodriguez, Podcast Partners, Derek W. Crabb, the Hair Metal Hero Chris Tyler, Gene Hendricks, and Logan Garrett. So please check us out on Facebook and Twitter, and you can uh, like, share, and retweet, spread the word about Earth Destruction Directive. All right, so what are we going to be talking about next time? Well, we are going to be revisiting Ultraman on our next episode, but not the series. We are jumping back into Ultraman movies. And set your way back machine to about December 2014. It's been about four years since we covered Mega Monster Battle Ultra Galaxy, the movie, which was the film that introduced Ultraman Zero. Well, next episode, we are covering Ultraman Zero, The Revenge of Belial. So look forward to that. I'm hoping to get 
uh, a guest on. Uh, you may be able to figure out who the guest I'm trying to line up is based on that earlier episode. Uh, but very much looking forward to this. Very fun uh, movie that introduces some new characters into the Ultraman universe. And it's been a while since I've seen it, so definitely looking forward to firing that up on the DVD player. We will also have all the news, notes, and emails, and other feedback. Anything that's fit to print, and we're going to have all that stuff on the next episode. So thank you very much for downloading and listening to this one. I hope everyone enjoyed this episode. Please come back next time for Ultraman Zero, The Revenge of Belial. And until then... Keep them stomping. This has been Earth Destruction Directive, a Dai Kaiju podcast, produced and created by me, Luke Jackanetti, as part of the Two True Freaks Internet Radio Network, available at twotruefreaks.com. This is a fan work celebrating the history and culture of Japanese giant monsters. All movies, TV shows, comic books, characters, and other intellectual property is copyright their respective copyright holders, and no infringement is intended or implied. If you'd like to send an email to the show, you can email me at earthdestructiondirective at yahoo.com. I respond to all emails, and if you send in some comments, I'll read them on the show. All episodes of Earth Destruction Directive can be found at twotruefreaks.com. You can also find the show on iTunes. Just search for Earth Destruction Directive. You can even leave an iTunes review if you want. You can get in touch with the show on Facebook. Just search for Earth Destruction as the first name and Directive as the last name. You can also get in touch with me on Twitter with the handle LJacone. That's L-J-A-C-O-N-E. And if you want to buy something discussed on the show, head on over to twotruefreaks.com and click on the Amazon.com link on the front page. Any items you buy during your session on Amazon.com will help keep the lights on, and it won't cost you anything extra. Thanks for listening, and be sure to come back next time for more city-stomping fun on Earth Destruction Directive. Tune in next time to hear the crusty old podcaster from Oklahoma say, There's a WTF <laughs> moment if I ever saw one. Well, it's big and terrible. More frightening than I ever thought possible.